You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Amen. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be together this morning. I just was downstairs for the first half of the service and and worshiping with the children, and I thought I was uninhibited in my worship, but then I got downstairs and realized, gee, I'm not so uninhibited. Uh, It was interesting to be able to be there. They do everything we do up here, you know. They, They have... They have the offering, and uh, this morning Jordan Schrader prayed the offertory prayer, and and uh, <laughs> I can hear nervous parents over there. <laughs> Got to correct that little boy's theology later on, but uh, you know, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but it really is great uh, to be able to be downstairs and to to see that the Lord is is uh, worshipped in more than just one place in this building every Sunday morning. I want to mention on Wednesday night, uh, this coming Wednesday, we begin our English conversation circles, and um, another term of that, six or seven weeks of that, and so again, it's an opportunity uh, for you, if you know someone, you want to bring them along, please do that, just uh, bring them along and and, uh, uh, have them just sit in a circle for for an hour and a half and talk English. A lot of new immigrants, uh, a lot of people that have been here for some time, actually, are are, uh, still wanting to practice and learn English, and so... This uh, Wednesday at 7.30, we begin that. Amen. Would you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Joshua? This morning, as we continue our study of Joshua, you might think it's an odd text for Thanksgiving. We're going to be talking this morning about coveting. And uh, I think actually as I was studying that it's actually a very, very good subject for Thanksgiving. For indeed there is nothing so diametrically opposed to a thankfulness on our hearts as having something else competing with that gratitude and it's a covetous spirit. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. But if you will begin with me by standing and let's read from Joshua chapter 7. And we'll begin with verse 10. Joshua chapter 7, beginning with verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies they turn their backs and run because they have made liable, been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. May God bless his word to, do, to us today. You may be seated. I want to uh, mention that we have, and you'll notice in your sermon notes, that yellow piece of paper, uh, four points to cover in two chapters. We're not going to even get to the fourth point. So I want to commend you to uh, look at that on your own. And as uh, we were preparing this week, we noticed that in the binders that were prepared and many of you bought, we didn't put the, the commentary notes for chapter 8, 30 to 35, which is the fourth point of this morning's sermon. And so we will put that online this week, probably by Tuesday. Uh, and so just take note of that. It's going to be online. Also, before we begin with looking at the text in the scripture this morning, I want to acknowledge that there is, uh, 
every week I've kind of touched on this a little bit, and again, I wanted this morning. Uh, Joshua can be very difficult for some to study because there is a lot of bloodshed, and it is hard sometimes to reconcile the God that we are reading about in Joshua with this God of love that we, we grew up understanding and knowing. And so I want to call that the severity of God this morning. And at various points this morning, we're going to be talking about the severity of God. And to start with, I just want to say four quick points that maybe help us understand and interpret some of the severity that we see in our God, the way he deal, deals with Israel. And the first thing I'd like to say is that the land of Canaan was God's land long before it was the land of the peoples of Canaan. And uh, we, we, we've talked about that. Uh, when God gave promise to Abraham in Genesis, we read in chapter 15, verse 16, that the sins of the Amorites had not yet reached their full measure, and then God would come and judge. So even the promise that God gave to Abraham, it was not until six or seven hundred years later that when they had become more wicked and independent of God, that God acted in judgment, but it was God's land. He promised it to Abraham, his people, and he had the right to send them in and take it. Okay. Um, secondly, the Canaanite peoples became wicked and rebellious, as we've talked about just now. And, uh, and so he was using his people, Israel, to bring about his own hand of judgment upon a people that were very, very wicked. And I referred last week to some of the sexual sins that were happening in Canaan. Leviticus chapter 18 talks about that. Uh, this week I would refer to you, Deuteronomy chapter 18 is another chapter in, in the first five books of the Bible that talk about the wickedness of Canaan. And it doesn't just talk about sexual sins, it goes beyond to talk about how vile that people had become. Then in, the third thing I want to mention is something that's called blood retribution. And this was something that was common among all tribal groups of the ancient world. And basically, blood retribution said that Israel was almost bound to kill not only soldiers of Canaan against them, but also women and children. And that's because every tribal culture of that time had it upon themselves that if, if someone kills you, you are obligated by blood relationship to, to go after the enemy until you, you bring vengeance. And so if Israel had entered the land of Canaan and not followed that pattern that other nations also followed, they would have been, never been able to settle in the land. They never would have had peace. And they would have always had that corruption around them, attacking them, and so on. And then finally, I want to mention that in the formative years of settling in the land, it was really important that God keep his people focused on him and that they did not enter into the corruption of the peoples that lived in the land. And so um, we see that many times God is, 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 tells his people, do not become like them. And, uh, and so their judgment had to be severe. Now, to borrow a a term from C.S. Lewis. What I'm appealing to you to see is that in the judgment that God meted out against the Canaanites, we see a severe mercy, actually. The severe mercy is that he is going to judge sin and he's going to protect his people from that same sin, a severe mercy. I want to suggest this morning that sometimes we approach the scriptures and we are asking all the wrong questions. The questions that I'd rather we ask of the, of the text is this. 
What kind of God would Yahweh be if he did not judge sin like we see in Canaan? What kind of God would Yahweh be if he didn't keep his promise to Abraham to give him the promised land? What kind of God would he be if he didn't bless those who seek him and judge sin for those who say, forget it, God, I'm living my own life? What kind of God would Yahweh be if he didn't protect the very people who he had sent into the world to be the light for the nations, to proclaim his fame, and so that everyone would know his salvation on earth? What kind of God would he be if he didn't protect that and guard that and guide that for the sake of of all the nations of the earth throughout all of time? That's something we have to ask ourselves. And that, I believe, is what we see in the scriptures today as well, the severity of God. Well, this morning's message addresses covetousness, and um, it, it, again, I think appropriate for Thanksgiving. Let, let me define what is it that covet means. To covet is to inordinately crave or desire something that is not yours. Now, the key word there is inordinately crave, and what does that mean? To inordinately desire or crave something is to attach a worth or value to something that is not proper or appropriate to everything else in your life. Inordinate means that you take something that is actually of very little value and you place it up higher on a higher value so that higher value things are displaced, including God. That's what idolatry is. Covetousness is idolatry. It's saying that this is more important. I'm going to place it up higher. And so your heart is given over to it. You start living for it. You start loving it above the things that ought to be loved of greater value. Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, all kinds of covetousness. For a man's life does not consist in the possessions that he has. So Jesus warns us. So coveting, in essence, says to God, it says, God, I don't like how you're treating me. I don't like the life that you've given me. And I want something more. And I want something else. And frankly, God, if I don't have something more or something else, I'm really not sure if I can trust you. That's what covetousness says to God. Let's take a look at the outline that we have in our, in our bulletin. And I want you to know that Joshua chapter 6 ends with a glorious verse of victory. Look at it. It says, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. One would anticipate that the next chapter would open with the same tone of optimism and hope. But instead, chapter 7 opens, and the first word is the but. You know that when you're having a conversation with someone and you have all this stuff preamble and then they say, but, you know that what comes after the but is what really they want to say, right? And so God says in chapter 7, but the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regards to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, the tribe of, of Judah, took some of them. And so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. So what are these devoted things? Well, in chapter 6 and 7, the, uh, verse 17, we read that everything in Jericho was to be devoted to God. Only Rahab was to be spared. In verses 18 and 19 of chapter 6, we see, 
But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and you make trouble on yourselves. All the silver and gold and all the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and they must go into his treasury, it says. There's a Hebrew word that's being used several times in chapter 6 and 7. It's the word sherem. And the word sherem basically means utter destruction. That's what it means. It comes from a root word, which means to utterly destroy, annihilate cities, peoples, and livestock. It's, it's actually related, a distant relative of the term harem. A harem is a group of women that are devoted to one man. Obviously, it's not in the, in the biblical Hebrew uh, sense, but it's a, a word that is used. And it's, it's the idea that that people, then, is, is forbidden for other men. And this is the idea of sherem, which is a similar word. It's saying that whatever is sherem is a devoted thing to God. It is forbidden for anyone else. It is holy. It has a a sanctuary-like quality to it, this word. It's a holy word. Whatever is sherem is absolutely for God alone. Peoples were to be killed as an offering of first fruits to God. And articles were to be kept in the temple treasury. For the Lord's use, not to be used by anyone else. In the context of Canaan, when this word is used of the land and the people, it's an offering to God. Moses speaks of it in Deuteronomy 20 as the first fruits idea. Joshua speaks of it in chapter 6, verse 18. But one man disregards the warning. And so the walls come down around Jericho, and the soldiers rush in to take the booty. And, and they operate on God's judgment principle. And then in the midst of it, one soldier named Achan comes upon a room. And he finds in that room some things of value. A robe from Babylonia, an ancient culture. A very nice robe. As well as a whole bunch of silver. Over five pounds of silver. Pure silver. And a wedge of gold that is over one pound in size. Now, whether it's between at the actual seeing of it or whether it's getting it back to the camp at Gilgal, but at some point, they were supposed to hand everything that they had taken to the Levites who would then take it and put it in the treasury of the Lord. But somewhere along the way, Achan decided these things were really precious and he coveted and he put a great value on them and he hid them in his tent. And so we see then a recipe for sin. Look at chapter 7, verse 21, a pattern that you might be very familiar with if you take a look at it. Chapter 7, verse 21 says, When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them, I took them, and they are hidden in the ground inside my tent. Do you see the pattern? I saw... I coveted, I took, I hid. Does that ring a bell to anybody? I saw, I coveted, I took, I hid. Genesis chapter 3 verse 6 says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took 
some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of them both were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. And then they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden and they hid from the Lord God. They saw, they coveted, they took, they hid. The pattern for sin. I don't know what your God concept is. But my God concept is that God is very permissive. God is a very permissive parent. And I get that from the very beginning of Scripture when we open up the Bible and some of the first interactions that God has with Adam and Eve. And we read about it in the Scriptures. I see a God that is not trying to limit life and kill joy. I see a God that's trying to expand life and give abundance and great joy for all of us. And so in the first interactions, we see not a restrictive parent, but a permissive one. He says in chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 16, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you shall surely die. I think, honestly, we should see in this text and in others a pattern for our parenting. We should seek to be the most permissive parents possible. I can see all the ch children listening really intensively now. I think we should be trying to be the most permissive we can be. Jesus says in the New Testament, he says, how many of you fathers, if your son asks for bread, we're going to give him a stone. Well, if you being evil know how to give good gifts and want to give good gifts to your children, how much more? I mean, come on. How much more will your heavenly father want to do that? We should want to be permissive parents good things. We want to bless our children. We see that from what God is like. But we also see a severe side, a no-nonsense guide to God. God did not stand in the garden with his arms folded and say, I'm going to count to ten. And you better not have that apple in your hand anymore. <laughs> we don't see God playing games like that. Instead, you see, God said, do not do this, and he means it. When we say that, we ought to mean it too. And there are consequences. So God's yes is an incredible, abundant, wonderful yes. And God's no is a foreboding, fearful no. Because there's consequences. And both sides of God are for our own good. So sin has a pattern and coveting is at the root of that pattern of sin. Francis Schaeffer said, The last commandment of the ten, do not covet, is, is because coveting comes before every other sin. Before we break any of the other nine commandments, we have coveted internally something either of God's or of another man's, and then we externalize the sin. Think about David and Bathsheba. He saw, he coveted, he took, and he did a lot of stuff to try and hide his sin. That pattern is something that you and I probably can identify with. If you're honest, you probably identify with it in your own experience because that's the way sin operates. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to have you. You see, be long before... You ever started desiring sin, sin started desiring you. 
long before you started coveting or putting something of more of estimable value in your life above God or above other things of value toward God, you were already a victim of a desire. Sin is crouching at our door. It desires to have it, but you must master it. You see, you must master it because if you do not, it will master you. Pick your poison. It's very sad in this scripture that like Achan, you and I are often more afraid of being found out than we are ashamed before God for what we've done. Isn't that strange? Do you identify with that? I do. The worst enemy that you and I have is ourselves. We are reluctant to recognize and identify that person. We are loath to label him as an enemy. The fact of the matter is that most of us rather like him. The second problem is that he's on the inside of us. If he would only come out and fight like a man, it would be different, but he will not. It is not because he's a coward, but because he can fight better from his position within. A quote from J. Vernon McGee. Have you, have you read the Apostle Paul's experience in Romans chapter 7? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? The good that I want to do, I don't do. The bad I don't want to do, I do. That's you and I too. But there's hope. And so we see in the scripture that Achan sins, but we're given that knowledge as readers of scripture. Joshua doesn't get that. After the walls come down in Jericho, they're back at Gilgal and they're celebrating before the Lord. Joshua and his leaders in Israel are saying, let's keep on going. We're on a roll. So Joshua sends spies to Ai, this next city. It's a 25-kilometer march uphill in the central highlands of Canaan. The spies come back and they say, you know what? It's smaller than Jericho. We can take this place. You don't need to send the whole army. Just send two or 3,000. And so Joshua sends 3,000 soldiers, but they are, they are driven away, and 36 soldiers die on the desert. 36 soldiers die in the fields. And Joshua, in chapter 7, verse 6, Joshua and the elders of Israel fall on their faces before God, and they say the same things that you and I say when bad things happen. They say the same things to God that, that you and I say when something goes wrong. They say, why, O oh God? And then they say, if only, O oh God. That's what we see in verse 6 or 7. They say, O oh, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan? If only we had been content to stay on the other side. And so there's God, or there's Joshua and, and the leaders of Israel on their faces before the Lord. They, they've got ashes, they, they've torn their clothes, they're repenting, they're saying, God, what's wrong? God comes along and taps them on the shoulder and says, get off your face. This is not the time to pray. I actually was thinking I should have done a skit this morning where, where one person was praying and the other person was God's voice and, and they, were, they were praying and then God said, you called? And then the, the person keeps on praying and says, uh, don't interrupt me, I'm praying. Can't you see I'm praying? Did God, has God ever interrupted your prayer? You know, in the middle of prayer, and you, God sometimes wants to answer or speak to you right in the middle of prayer. You're not listening. 
because you're talking. That's what happened here. They're talking away. They're, they're doing it. And God says, get off your face. This is not the time to pray. There is a time to pray and there's a time not to pray. And God said, this is not the time to pray. The time to pray would have been after Jericho fell, before you went off half-cocked to the city of Ai. But now's not the time to pray, because now's the time to get action. There's sin in the camp, and you need to deal with it, because if you don't, I'm not going to be with you. You know, God sometimes doesn't hear our prayer, because we got a smoldering disobedience going on. I read a story a long time ago of a little boy who found a little cigarette butt on the sidewalk in a, in, a, in a town, picked it up and started smoking it. And his father came out from the store that he was in and noticed it, but he didn't say anything. And to divert his father's attention, he said, Oh, Daddy, can we have some ice cream? He pointed at a sign. And the father said, Son, don't ever, don't ever ask for something from me when you're trying to hide a smoldering disobedience. You see, we can't just go to God and expect that he's going to listen to us when we've got something we know God said, you've got to deal with this. doesn't mean that we fix it in, in, in one moment, but at least you bring it toward God and you say, God, you know this is my problem. I'm, I, I surrender this to you. You don't hide it. Alan Redpath said, if you pray in the time of victory, you will never have to plead in the time of defeat. I think if we were to paraphrase phrase verses 11 and 12 in chapter 7, it would sound something like this. God said to Joshua, Joshua, you know me. You know me. You know there's only one reason why 36 of my people had to die today. You know the reason why. Get off your face. There's something wrong in the camp. And so he did. Note that God says Israel has sinned even though only one man sinned. Sin is a social disease. We're not islands. We can't live individualistic lives like we think we can. These are ramifications of the trouble that sin causes. I remember seeing a cartoon once and it had a, a, two men in a boat, one on each end. And on one end of the boat there was a hole in the boat and there was water spewing up into the boat. And on the other end there was the little dot, dot, dot thinking going on in the other man's mind and, and he was th saying to himself I'm glad it's not in my end of the boat <laughs> that's the kind of the way we live we think we can live individualistic lives like sin is not a social illness but it is it affects all of us when one part of the body suffers the whole body suffers so the ramifications of the trouble that sin causes are seen in the remainder of chapter 7 as the Lord reveals to Joshua who has sinned, and in verses 24 and following, they take Achan and his whole family, and they go to the Valley of Achor. And the, the word Achor is the Valley of Trouble. Just like Achan's name is a little bit of a takeoff on that as well. He's the troublemaker. And they take him to the Valley of Trouble. And there they have to do one of the hardest things that Israel probably ever had to do. They had to take stones and stone the family to death. They took the gold wedge and the silver and the Babylonian robe and all of his livestock and, and they, they devoted it there to God. And they said, God, nothing's more important than you and your holiness. The family members of the 36 soldiers that died would have been holding stones. They were called upon to do it 
not in vengeance, but in the holiness of God. The friends of Achan's family were there holding stones. They were called upon to, to do it because the holiness of God is more important than any human relationship. This was a difficult thing. We see the severity of God here, don't we? But it tells us a message about the holiness of God. And we see in this, again, a severe mercy. God protecting his people at a vulnerable time, a severe mercy. Just like Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament, when God acted so, so strongly when they lied to the apostles. What kind of God would he be if he did not do so? So after the Lord had warned them and been ignored, he acted in judgment. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Sometimes we deliberately sin, don't we? Sometimes we know what's right and we do the wrong. We willfully disobey. And I want to tell you that the picture of Achan ought to point us to the cross where one took upon himself the wrath of God. You see, in the scripture that we're looking at this morning, when the wrath of God was satisfied with the evildoer being judged, the very next verse says, and God turned from his anger. And the very next chapter, chapter 8, God says, now, now get back to work. Take the city of Ai. I'll be with you. You'll be victorious. <clears throat> and in this passage as well, we see that when we, when we are in sin, even deliberate, willful sin, there's only one refuge. There's only one that took the wrath of God for us, and he is his son, Jesus Christ. And I encourage all of us to run to him. He's our only refuge. Let's move on. Just as I said that the chapter break between 6 and 7 was abrupt, so also 7 to 8 is radical. In chapter 7, we see a community of faith carrying out a death sentence upon friends and family members' difficulty. And then, all of a sudden, we see in chapter 8, the Lord commanding Joshua to not be afraid, not be discouraged, but to continue in the conquest of Canaan. And notice that this time they're allowed to take the plunder from that city. The first fruits had been dealt with. God is not a formulaic God. God is not a God in a box. God is not a God that you can say, well, he, he, he did this, so this is the way we'll do it. God wanted his people to walk by faith. It's kind of like in the New Testament, you know, that Jesus never healed a blind man the same way twice. Because if he did, the apostles would sort of look at it and say, oh, that's how you do it. It has to be by faith. And so the Lord brings about the victory in I as well. And in this passage of Scripture, I want you to know that the, the tables had turned. It was difficult to go back and take the land that had been stolen from them. What I mean by that is that they'd already lost on that battlefield, and to go back into that place was difficulty. The recovery of ground that sin has stolen from us is not easy to recover the Canaanites now had the edge, humanly speaking. They had the victory. Israel had the defeat. The psychological ballast had been shifted. And now Israel was melting in fear 
because of the Canaanites. Earlier it said that the Canaanites were melting in fear because of the Israelites. Well, now the tables have turned. You see, when we have fallen prey to sin, it is really hard to retake victory in that area of your life. Ask anybody that knows anything about addictions, and they will tell you that this is true. Once you have had defeat and failure in an area of life, you can, it, it is harder to go back and to take that land. Lost ground is hard to regain. And that's why all the more it has got to be at the Lord's doing. And so the, the city of Ai is taken in a different way than the city of Jericho. In this case, God plans a whole ambush strategy and, 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 and the city of Ai falls and Israel is successful. And you read in chapter 8 that the Lord directed his people into victory. What does the scripture have to teach us this morning? As we get ready to conclude, what does the Lord have to say to us? What is the take home from this passage of scripture on Thanksgiving Sunday? Where there were clear reasons for defeat in Israel, one of the first ones was the over-self-confidence that they had in thinking that because they, they were given one victory, that they just could keep on living in victory without depending on God and seeking God. The prayerlessness, the fact that they sent spies without consulting, the fact that they'd send 3,000 and so on. You and I can get overconfident, not in times of defeat, but in times of victory. When everything's going well, that's the time to pray. That's the time to seek the Lord. And the disobedience that they, they experienced through Achan is a reminder in the aftermath that God disciplines those he loves that it's a severe mercy sometimes that he doesn't let us have our way, that he stands in the way, that he doesn't listen to our prayers, that he bothers us, that he's the hound of heaven and pursues us for his own sake. Chapter 7, verse 13 is a passage that I personally meditated on in preparation for this sermon when it said, you cannot stand against your enemies until you remove those things devoted to the Lord. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove it. God, you cannot play games with God. You must have a surrendered life to the Lord. And that's what God is asking of us. And so this morning, as we conclude, my question to all of us is, is your heart covetous? Is there anything in your heart that you would say is described by that word to covet? To inordinately desire something that does not belong to you? to place it on a higher level than it really needs to be. You know, our whole society operates on the basis of consumerism. It operates on the basis of, of planning a desire and then meeting that desire and creating covetousness in our midst. And God says, no, I, I want to be supreme in your heart. I want no competition in your heart. I love to give you all these things. I'm a permissive God. But you must Love me with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Nothing to compete. And so this morning as we conclude, I, I would ask you, bring whatever that thing is that is meant to be devoted to the Lord, to utter destruction. Bring it to the Lord so that on this day, on this Thanksgiving weekend, nothing competes with a thankful heart. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. 
this morning and its message to our hearts. And Lord, I, I thank you that the call that you've given us is to, to love you with our whole being, to not let any other loves enter in. And though our hearts sometimes can be idol-making factories, Lord, we pray that we would demolish those factories, that we would tear them down and not allow them to grow the moment we see, that we would live the kind of life, O oh Lord, that, that is, first of all, loving you, and then enjoying everything that you want to bless and give us. Would you, Lord, in each individual, in each family here, would you bless our thanksgiving with true gratitude to the one who alone can save us from sin and he give us eternal life, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray, amen. Recently bought some new music and uh, one of the CDs that I bought is kind of jazz, blues, gospel stuff by guys called the Five Blind Boys of Alabama. And they uh, sing a song. One of the songs they sing is that I'm not, I can't qu quote it exactly, but it's basically, my soul is going to wonder how I got over. My soul is going to wonder one day how I got over. And you know, at the end of the conquest, when we get to the final pages of Joshua, I'm sure that they're going to wonder, how is it that we took the land? And I think that one day when you and I stand before God in heaven, I think we're going to wonder, oh God, how did I ever get over? And, and we need to know it's because of the mercy, the tender and sometimes severe mercy of our Lord God. Go in his peace. God bless you.